Hey there! Welcome to Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College thesis process and experience. I'm your host and producer, Tommy Schacht, and for this episode, I got to interview Lily Sedaire about their thesis on Chinese-American immigrants in the 1800s. This topic wasn't exactly what Lily had originally planned, but they had to switch gears because they don't have much of a background in farming. Sound a little weird? Keep listening to hear how Lily's thesis evolved and how they even finished early. Pretty impressive. My name is Lily Sedaire. I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm in the history department, and my thesis title is For Lewd and Immoral Purposes, Chinese Women in the United States in the Page Act of 1875. And I was fortunate enough to have Margot Minardi as my thesis advisor. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah, no, she's, I had, it was really sweet. I'm going to miss her a lot, actually. That's so nice that you have someone who is a good fit. Yeah. Could you just give me a quick summary? Tell me what your thesis is about. I am looking at 19th century United States, and this is right after Reconstruction. And I'm specifically looking at Chinese-American interactions and how the Chinese are basically, their place in American society is being delegitimized through the language used against them and what methods and what tactics the Chinese community is also using to speak up against anti-Chinese sentiment. And so in my thesis, I argue that because I'm looking at after the Civil War, the anti-Chinese sentiment being expressed is through anti-slavery rhetoric and is weaponized by policymakers and lawmakers to basically state that Chinese people are immoral and should not be living in the United States. And I, one of the main examples I use throughout my thesis is the Page Act of 1875, which is not a very well-known legislation because it was rescinded in the late 20th century, maybe early 20th century, and is no longer in existence, but the lasting effects of it were to prohibit Chinese women from entering the United States. And I'm looking at what language was used in this legislation and what the response of Chinese people were to this discriminatory act. Yeah, so can you give some examples of the language that you're looking at? Yeah, a lot of this kind of ties into the general history of Chinese Americans in the United States with coolie labor and how as more Chinese immigrants came to the United States to work on the railroads or during the gold rush, their place in American society was questioned by these policymakers and these the governors and congressmen under this pretense that they are coming to the United States as slaves or as indentured servants. So this kind of idea that the Chinese were enslaved to a greater person fed into this anti-slavery rhetoric that was very present after the Civil War because of all the racial tensions that just happened. And so policymakers really hopped onto this anti-slavery narrative and really propelled it and pushed it towards Chinese men who were coming to the United States and working as immigrants and then also pushed it onto Chinese women who were also entering the United States. And this was more so through the narrative that these women were prostitutes and they were coming for lewd or immoral purposes. And a lot of the language that was talked about was just comparing the slave trade to the trading of Chinese women within Chinese society. And when Chinese women would try and enter the United States, they were uh, basically prohibited under the Page Act from entering solely on the basis that they were coming to prostitute themselves in the United States and that they were a threat to the moral and physical safety of white Americans. 
That's really interesting. It feels like they really just went straight for what they thought the scariest thing would be. Yeah. My thesis really focuses on the impact of Reconstruction and the Civil War had just happened. And so the anti-slavery, pro-slavery debate is still very much in people's heads. And so the fact that congressmen and legislators use that to talk about the Chinese in such a way that paints the picture of them as enslaved is really, it's quite, honestly, looking back, I'm like, it's quite clever. And similarly, you see this kind of rhetoric still happening today in present day media. Yeah, sort of clever and terrible. Yeah, and it's a very, I want to say it's manipulative and it's really calculated and it's like these feigned concerns about slavery, but it's also very directed towards the Chinese rather than other groups immigrating to the United States. So the fact that these lawmakers were focusing solely on Chinese women and Chinese men is very targeted and very rooted in the xenophobia. Yeah. One of the terms in this law stipulates that it was solely up to the person who was at the port and he could determine whether or not the incoming ship, if there's Chinese women on, he could determine whether or not they were coming quote unquote, for the purpose of lewd or immoral purposes. And the whole livelihood of these women was really resting in the hands of this one one individual who could determine whether or not they were allowed to step foot on American soil or not. Yeah, it sounds like it was pretty much totally arbitrary. Yeah, it was extremely, it was a really calculated move from the United States. And it was extremely rooted in xenophobia and the sphere of threatening the white American moral standards at the time and also there was this anxiety of the health and safety of Americans, specifically with the prostitutes and this idea that these Chinese women would bring in sexually transmitted diseases that were specific to their race. Yeah, and I imagine that the language barrier too also plays a part in that, where you show up and can't really communicate Mm -hmm. with the person who's at the port very well. Yeah, that's actually one of the court cases that I look at several cases, but one of the cases that I look at, it, it was first a civil appeals court case, and then it actually progressed to a Supreme Court case. These Chinese women were basically contesting the Page Act and saying that this is not fair. You cannot have one person determine whether or not I should be allowed to enter the United States. And these definitions are also extremely fluid. And what even is lewdness? What does morality mean? These are really broad terms that these women are being forcefully categorized into. And so one of the cases I look at is Chai Lung v. Freeman. Chai Long v. Freeman was a Supreme Court case where these Chinese women basically stood up against the Page Act and really challenged what was being said in it. And you can read the different testimonies that the commissioner gave or the police officer gave that talk about what characteristics they were looking at to determine whether or not these women were lewd. So one example of this was when one of the judges said that one of the women's sleeves were a little too open and airy. And so he suggested that because their sleeves were bigger or you could see more inside in the wrist that they were prostitutes and they were coming for. What a whore! You can see her wrist! (laughs) Yeah, no, it's just like these women are crying during these testimonies and they're saying that they just want to come for work and their whole identity is being challenged and they really can't do anything. One of the, the cases mentions that it's really unfair for these women to be subjected to such harsh interrogation after just stepping foot onto the United States, they don't understand the cultural customs and the language is also very new. So they're really put at a disadvantage from the get-go. And the Page Act itself is just such a oppressive force targeting Chinese women. Were 
native-born white Americans subjected to the same standards of their sleeves being too open and things like that? No, oh my gosh, no. One of the reasons why it was specifically Chinese women was because there was this belief that the Chinese participated and were kind of part of immoral and unstructured family roles. And so during this time, any threat to the family structure and gender roles is a very big threat. And so the Chinese, the way that their families were formed, congressmen and lawmakers saw that they were not conforming to the domesticated good wife and then good husband. And a lot of the anti-Chinese rhetoric during this time was very much rooted in kind of slandering Chinese families and the formation of these Chinese families. So when Chinese women started to come into the United States, they saw this as a threat to A, naturalization of Chinese people into the United States, and then B, the threat that these Chinese women would bring in this immorality to American cities. That's so interesting because I feel like my understanding now of Chinese culture is like there's a huge focus on like filial piety and yeah. all these mm-hmm. relationships that are really important in the family. That's interesting. That's the take that they took. They were like, yeah. families aren't structured enough. Yeah. One piece of evidence that was used to justify this lack of conformity to American family structures was a census taken in the 1800s that recorded the number of families in Chinatown. And so they found that Within one block of Chinatown, there were, say, 200 children and 400 Chinese women. And the American census takers really struggled with being able to document which household was which because of the fluidity of Chinese families and that everyone kind of cares for one another. It's not really these set gender roles where the mother takes care of the child and that's it. It was more so like a community-based raising of the children. That was something that really frustrated Americans, when they were confronted with the fluidity of Chinese families, it wasn't so much that every family was like you were mother, father, and that was the household. It was a lot more fluid and. And like to this day, that makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. People like things to be black and white. Yeah, it's essentially that the California census, when they went to the houses, they were really frustrated with how they could not draw these lines between each household and that. These families were existing in a state of constant interaction, constant, you care for one child and another child. It was not mother, daughter, son, father. It was a lot more fluid. So tell me about how you picked this topic and got into it. So originally, I was actually going to write my thesis on Portland's Chinese vegetable gardens, because when the Chinese community came to Portland, they were quarantined to the lesser conditions or the worst places in Portland. And so one of the really bad places or one of the more disadvantageous places that the Chinese were quarantined to was along the banks of the Willamette River. And this was really bad because the Willamette would frequently flood. They gave the worst area to the minorities at the time. And as a way, I I see it as a way of resistance to these oppressive forces The Chinese actually built these vegetable gardens along the banks, and they really utilized the fact that the Willamette would frequently flood, and they would use that to water their gardens. And so that was something that I was really interested in exploring, and I was really interested in looking at the history of Chinese agriculture in Portland and how it was being used as a form of resisting the oppressive forces, and then also looking at what vegetables did they grow? Were they native to China, like bok choy, or were they traditionally Western vegetables. I was really interested in looking at how agriculture could be this amalgamation of 
Chinese and Western culture. But I realized that it was a bigger project than I could undertake in a year. And I was also very inexperienced in agriculture. A lot of my research involved trying to figure out what places were best to grow in. And it was just a very farm heavy topic. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this this year. Yeah, I don't have the time. It's so I, I was like, you know, what? I'll stick more to what I know. And that's how I stumbled upon the Page Act. And yeah, that's where it began. When you first came to read, did you know that you wanted to spend a lot of time looking into Chinese immigration? I'm Chinese myself, and I'm really interested in that Chinese-American diaspora and looking at the Chinese identity. And I knew I wanted to do something that had an intersection between that racial aspect and then also gendered aspect of it. But when I came to read, I actually came in as a biochem major, which is really random because, yeah, and then I nearly failed chemistry my first year. And that kind of snapped me back to reality. And I was like, actually, I really don't enjoy this at all. And I was leaning more towards anthropology and then sociology. But I knew I wanted to do something in the humanities. And then Finding history was really nice because history, you can look at the history of anything. History can be incorporated into any field, which was really cool. And so I was able to get that balance that I was looking for. I I appreciate how Reed has liberal arts. I didn't like it at first, but I was like, no, it's actually really nice because you do end up being really well-rounded, in my opinion. Does your family's personal immigration history connect at all to this topic? Actually, I'm adopted from China. Oh, so you don't know? (laughs) No, I don't know. And that's, I think, what has really propelled me into being interested about Chinese-American identity and exchange interaction is because a part of my own identity is not really, I don't really know much about it. So I'm really interested in understanding it deeper. And that's what has motivated a lot of my desire to study the diaspora. And I would have loved to do a thesis about Chinese adoption with the United States, because I think that's also a really interesting topic, like the relationship that China and the US have had throughout the years, specifically the like recently with like, I don't know, there's just a lot going on between China and the US and there's been some tensions for a while. For my Watson Fellowship, my project was to explore and interview what we're doing right now, like interview other uh, Chinese and Asian adoptees to understand cultural and I guess national ties to like the country that they're living in versus the country that they're originally born in. Yeah, that relationship is really just complex. Yeah, and I could see, I think that all students are on some level trying to explore and figure out their identities but a lot of us learn a lot about our culture from our families and mm-hmm. like that part is set for us mm-hmm. so yeah and it's been actually really nice the process of this thesis has been really exhausting from an emotional level of just i've been reading a lot of just really sad documents and oh. like a lot of i mean it's because i'm reading a lot about anti-chinese wording and legislation and hearing what these policymakers and even the public is talking and thinking about the Chinese community from as early as the 1800s. And reading those excerpts is is just very exhausting and emotionally taxing. If I was able to do my thesis over, I would love to take a more celebratory approach to looking at the Chinese identity. And I think that would be really nice. Yeah, well, maybe future work. Yeah, I don't know. I need a break right now. I need a break. (laughs) I'm tired. Like, personally, not having, like, a set structure or set prompt or even, like, guidelines is really hard. History is within the HSS Department, so Humanities and Social Sciences. (laughs) Because the library is under construction, we didn't actually receive any thesis desks until the kind of later part of the second semester. And so 
Most of my thesis writing was actually done at cafes and coffee shops around Portland. Do you have any recommendations? Okay, yes, actually. I, I talked about this in my acknowledgments, but some recommendations for places to get work done is Blue Kangaroo in Selwood, Tea Chai Tay, that's also in Selwood. It's a really cute tea place. Rose City Coffee, which is in like Milwaukee. And then Living Room Cafe, which is also in Selwood. These are a lot of <laughs> Selwood places because of I live in Selwood. There's a really big coffee culture here. And so yeah. I have really appreciated how a lot of the coffee shops have a theme or they're really catered towards a specific audience yeah. or a, a specific goal in mind. But yeah, it's really cute, right? Have you been to Keeper Coffee? I have not. Keep oh you haven't? Okay. Oh. It's a really big reedy hot spot. Like That's all the so like whenever I go, I always run into someone that goes to read and it's yeah, it's not good. It's not. You can take it either way, but it's it's just along. Yeah, it's by Woodstock, basically. Cool, cool. Yeah, you should check it out. It's very cute. Actually, believe it or not, this is very outside of what I normally do. I was actually on top of my shit. I was really on top of it because I I, I honestly think it might have just been like that anxiety. And also, Margot, my advisor, is a very she's from Boston. She's on time. Like she's a very punctual person. Really emphasizes that. And so I think that I love having punctual people. Yeah. So having her as my advisor, she's really prepared me to keep on top of things and so no hate to everyone else but like when everyone was struggling writing their thesis like I was kind of vibing like, like I don't know I, during that week like I was I was doing edits I really waited to turn in my thesis I waited for my friends to do that too but yeah I had my thesis done like quite a while back and was just mostly working on edits which was really nice most seniors cannot say that yeah. most seniors don't say that but do yeah do you have any secret tips for people who have not started their theses yet? So something that really helped me was I actually did my JSEM, my junior seminar. We had to be an end of year paper. I used that paper as my chapter one because a lot of... Tricky. Yes. <laughs> little copy and pasting. My JSEM paper was about the first Chinese woman to come to the United States. So I was able to incorporate that into my entire thesis because I talk about Chinese women being discriminated against. That does feel like a nice intro. So yeah, it was really, it was just nice. That was my chapter one and I was able to get a leg up from other people. <laughs> I think the hardest part of the thesis process is just being able to discipline yourself into sitting down and writing it. And something that really helped was the Pomodoro method. Yeah, I know many it. people know about it, but <laughs> I was hooked. And so being able to set that timer for yourself and allowing yourself to have that time to go get a snack or like just scroll on your phone yeah. was really nice. And it's a lot easier to discipline yourself when you're yeah. given a, a time slot or guidelines than just free falling it. Did you set many deadlines for yourself or goals? Do you have a calendar? So actually, again, thank you, Margo Man argue if you're listening yeah she actually had all these internal deadlines the hss department has its own final deadlines but she would give me my own personal deadlines and that actually really helped and no hey margo but like i was a little scared of her so like i would make sure to be on top of it i didn't want it like my ass was scared so i was like really working diligently to try and meet those deadlines so yeah did your thesis final product turn out how you expected it to um, yes, I wish I had more than a year, or I guess we didn't even have a year, it's two semesters. I just wish I had more time to actually really dedicate and work towards it. I would say this is a first draft, and I'm proud of the work that I put in towards it, but honestly, I'm not satisfied with it. <laughs> if I could do it over, I would put a lot more time and energy towards it. I think that being a full-time student and a part-time worker is just, it's a lot, and then you're also trying to do your thesis. If I was able to do it over, I would definitely dedicate a lot more time and energy towards the writing aspect of it and the editing aspect. And I would love to either get more documents or primary sources from like Chinese community members and to actually have that voice be really 
emphasized throughout my writing because a lot of my thesis was centered around what were people who hated Chinese people saying. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, like I would love to be able to explore something that was a little more like positive if I had more time. But that's the thing, like it's really hard to find yeah. the Chinese voices specifically because either they didn't speak English or they didn't have the resources to even publish something that would stay like an institutional memory for a longer time. And so one of the only things I could find was like this newspaper clipping that disproved a lot of the anti-Chinese sentiments that were being expressed. Other than that, like it's dry out there. Like it's, there's not a lot out there. It's very frustrating because again, education is a privilege and being able to have access to the resources to even be able to express how you're feeling to a public audience was really difficult. So it was normally the people whose voices I was able to capture were either really wealthy Chinese people or Chinese folks who had the very rare occasions when they had actually grown up in the United States. But yeah, it's again, very rare. I had three chapters. And so like I said, my first chapter was copy pasted from my JSON paper, which was really nice. And then my second chapter focused on the actual page act itself and what was the language being used and who was it targeting. And then the last chapter looked at missionary white women and how they were approaching the Chinese community and how, unlike the Page Act, which had an exclusionary approach to the Chinese community, missionary white women had a more reformist approach to dealing with the Chinese community. And that kind of ties into this idea of structured families. The key to fixing the Chinese community, these missionary women believed that it was through domestication. They would have these houses where they would teach these women how to sew and cook and clean. And this project has really been rooted in this intersection between race and gender and the idea that like through domestication you can actually better a racial group is just an insane like the whole point of it is to create and to domesticate a Chinese woman into a household and have them have like a fixed uh, role in that household wild mm-hmm. disgusting it's really it's been like a harrowing experience do you have any plans yet for post read yeah so over the summer I'm going to be an extern for this judge in Phoenix, Arizona, and he does a lot of civic appeals cases. So I'm going to be working with him. And then I also uh, just accepted the summer internship award. So I'll be in Belize and I will be doing an oral history project with this one music teacher who really wants to record her past students' relationship to music and culture. And then after that, I have plans to go to Spain as like a teaching assistant for English. And that's a program with the Ministry of Education. So that'll be a year-long thing that I'll be doing. Do you feel like your thesis experience informed any of those decisions? You talked about some of the court cases that you looked at, for example, here. And I was wondering if that sort of fanned your interest in law to work with this judge. Yeah, I mean, all the readies are like so skeptical of the law. Everyone's, fuck the law, fuck the police. And I'm, yeah, fuck the police, but (laughs) for sure. But I don't know. I was very skeptical of anything to do with the law. I think it's inherently just a really fucked up system. And studying it up close, you can see how much it actually is fucking up people's lives real time and still continues to impact those communities. But yeah, exploring the legal aspects of gender and race has, I don't know, introduced me or given me a little taste of interest in law and like where I see myself. Because I see myself actually doing this more full time, pursuing a career in this. But again, I don't want to become a sellout. I don't want to participate in like any government thing. Like I would just love to have a bookshop or (laughs) to do something really chill. Yeah. (laughs) 
I was already skeptical of getting a history degree because I was like, what can you do with it? No hate, no hate, but there's not... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so final question. Is there anyone you would like to thank for helping you out with the thesis process? Oh, that's a really sweet... Okay, I would really love to thank my family for helping me out. Right before my thesis was due, I actually, my grandfather passed away. And so I had to fly back to Phoenix, emergency flight back. I don't know, everyone was so supportive of me because it was such a tense time. Thank you to my family. Shout out to my grandpa. I got to go back to Phoenix for one last time, which was really nice. I would like to thank my housemates. They were the people I was smoking with (laughs) on a nightly basis and just was able to bounce ideas off of. And yeah, and thank you to my advisor as well, of course. He took me out to get pho, which was really nice. Is anybody else now craving pho? Thanks, Lily, for telling us about your thesis and all the work that went into it. And thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again to talk to more readies about their theses and better understand just why you'd want to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Tommy Schacht. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janica. Nate Martin, staff member and class of 2016, is our project manager. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gottschlick and Lillian Pham, class of 2020. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.